So the reading is from 2 Kings, chapter 5. 2 Kings, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. 
When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. everyone. I've split this sermon into three. Well, the first point, we'll take a step back and think about God healing people as he healed Naaman. And then the next two points after that, we'll get more into the story of Elisha and Naaman. So let's think about that first bit. First of all, God healing people. It's one of the many true stories in the Bible of someone being healed by God. So I want to ask two questions. Why does God heal people? And if he's going to heal people, why doesn't he heal everyone? So that first question there, why does God heal people? And Hannah's already talked about God's grace. Um, We can take it as read, can't we? That every time God heals a person, it is his sovereign act of grace. It's not because it's particularly deserved by a person. It's just because God chooses to do that. Here's another reason. It is a taster of what is to come. Here we go. I was in Tesco once and I saw someone on a small stool, about this sort of size actually, giving out a new flavor of Maltesers. But she wasn't going to give you the whole bag, just one Malteser. It was a taster of what was to come. And then if you wanted the real thing, you had to buy the bag. Now, if you're fast enough afterwards, you might be able to get one of these. Every time God heals someone, it's a little taster of a future where there is no more illness or suffering or death or sadness of any kind. That's what the Bible calls eternal life or heaven, paradise, a new creation. It's got all these words for it. It's a taster of what's to come. But that being the case, why doesn't God give a taster to everyone? And then we could all be like, wow, this is really good. I want to be part of that. 
Well, because God wants to remind us that the taster is not the real thing. If uh, I took a Malteser from the lady and said, oh, that's the best experience I've ever had. I'm going to savor that moment forever. And then never bought a bag of Maltesers. I've kind of missed the point, haven't I? It's just a taster. And then I'm going to get the real thing. So this world is not the paradise that God is offering people. It never can be. It's too full of evil and suffering. God is promising something completely renewed. So let me read you a couple of Bible verses. 2 Peter 3 says, In keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And Revelation 21.4, I'm always quoting this verse, talks a bit about that. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers for someone to be healed to remind us that we're still in the old order of things. And we must keep looking ahead to what God has promised. So not everyone can pray for healing and be healed. Not everyone can have the taster, but the good news is that the real thing is available to anybody who wants it. Not everyone saw that stall in Tesco's where I could taste, have a taster of that Malteser. But if you went two weeks later or however long, you could buy a bag of the real thing. You didn't need the taster. So let's turn to the story of Naaman and see that he wanted healing, so he got it by God's grace. But another surprising group didn't want it, and so they didn't get it. We'll be looking, those will be my next two points, actually. We'll be looking at Naaman, who wanted it and got it, and the other group who didn't want it and didn't get it. And I'll be asking, which of those two are you? Do you want healing? And when I'm talking about healing, I'm not just talking about healing from a physical disease, although you may want that. That's just a taster. I'm saying, do you want complete healing and to be part of God's new creation and to have eternal life? Do you want that? If you do, then we need to learn from Naaman's example. So let's have a look at this second point. Let's look at Naaman's journey to healing. And I want to look at that under four headings, the first of which is hurt. Naaman hurt, probably physically, but I'm talking about the kind of hurt where we know in our souls that something is wrong. We're not complete. The first step on Naaman's journey to healing was knowing that he had a need. Right in verse 1, we're introduced to this man, Naaman, and we're told five things about him. Now, if you've got a Bible open in front of you, take a look down at verse 1 and shout out, what five things are we told about this man, Naaman? Commander of the army, army. yes, thank you. High-powered, this guy. Anything else? Great Great man in the sight of his master. He was trusted by the king. Highly regarded. Thank you, Jordan. Yeah, he'd been a successful commander, and it actually attributes his success to the Lord. Whatever success we have in life is granted to us by God. We'll come back to that a bit later. Very brave, brave, a valiant soldier, it says. And then the fifth thing is the problem he had. He had leprosy, probably not um, what we would call leprosy in the modern world, but a skin disease of some sort. Now, this man, I think, is a particularly good picture of us in the wealthy West, because he basically had everything he could possibly want. He had a very comfortable life. But he wasn't whole. 
he still had a hurt. Something was wrong. And if God is at work in your life, you will know that there's, not, there's something not quite right in your heart and your soul. No matter how, many, uh, how comfortable a life you live, no matter how many good things you enjoy, there's something not quite right. There's something wrong that needs to be healed. And we call that, that thing that's wrong, sin. Those little envying thoughts, those little angry outbursts, things like that are just symptoms of what is wrong with us that we are sinners and need to be healed. So Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you want to receive God's great healing and eternal life, the first thing you need to do is acknowledge that you need healing. That's the first heading, hurt. Second thing is humility. This proud, and powerful man then needed to take three humbling steps, maybe even knocks to his pride, before he would be healed. The first knock to his pride was that he didn't have the answer to his problem. His wife's slave girl did. This is verse 2. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, let's take a step back and think, Naaman was the second most powerful man in his country. This slave girl was probably the least powerful person in the country. She was the wrong race. She was an Israelite amongst Arameans. She was young in a society that valued age. She was a slave with no rights and no possessions and no freedom. And she was a woman in a patriarchal society. That's the person God chooses to have Naaman's answer, as Nick said at the beginning. So 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. In today's world, we're encouraged to look inside ourselves to find what we need to overcome our problems. If Naaman did that, he would never have been healed. But he was humble enough to listen to this slave girl, and his humility opened the door to his healing. Now, if you remember our series in the story of the life of uh, Joseph in August, I take it that this slave girl is like the Joseph of this story. Uh, like Joseph, she's in slavery. She has plenty of reasons to be bitter, and yet instead she acts in faith and love. She knows what will heal Naaman, and she doesn't hide it. She even longs for Naaman to have the answer. She says, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So God gave her amazing faith, forgiveness, and love so that she could bring about tremendous good, even though she was in the most terrible situation. That's an encouragement to us, I think. She's also an example to us. We have good news to share. Let's pray for a heart that longs to share it, even with those we don't particularly like. But more importantly, she is a picture of our Savior Jesus, isn't she? He was also a suffering servant. Jesus didn't hide the problem, uh, hide the solution to humanity's problem. Jesus didn't part with that solution grudgingly. 
He just lived a life of love and service, and he died on the cross to save us from our sins. Now, his self-sacrificial love is the key to us receiving God's great healing. Just as this slave girl's self-sacrificial love was the key to Naaman receiving healing. So don't look inside yourself for the answer to life's problems, and particularly the great problem of sin and death. There are no answers inside of ourselves. We need to look to Jesus, the servant. Here's the second humbling thing that Naaman had to go through. He didn't see the prophet. Verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry. You can see how it would be insulting. You've traveled a long way to see the prophet. You're a powerful, powerful guy. And the prophet doesn't even bother to come out to you himself. He just leaves a little note on the door saying, please leave the parcel in the porch or whatever. For us to receive God's great healing, we need to be humble. And we need to listen to God's messengers. The Bible stories today are not just for Sunday school. You know, um, probably around Christmas time, we'll be hearing Christmas time, mistletoe and wine. Children singing Christian rock. Just children? Is it, you know, adults are a bit above this? It's just children who sing these sort of Sunday school stories? No, these are for adults as well. We have to be humble and we have to learn from them. And Naaman shows us that when we do listen to God's messengers, their message might not meet up to our expectations. Verse 11 again, Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Now, you've all come to church today with expectations about how God should work and what God should do, perhaps, to prove himself. What if he doesn't meet up to those expectations? We need to be humble enough to leave those expectations behind and let God work on his terms. And here's the third knock to Naaman's pride. He couldn't earn his healing. He came laden with treasure for Elisha. If he'd given it to Elisha, probably Elisha would have been the richest man in his country. And Elisha wouldn't take any of it. How humiliating that nothing this wealthy guy could bring could buy his healing. He's worked hard all his life, and yet he's got a problem that he can't buy. He needed to leave everything he could contribute behind and acknowledge that the only way he could come to God was empty-handed. That's the only way you and me can come to God. God only gives us his great healing by his grace. He never takes payment for it. There's nothing we could pay God to be healed. The flip side of that, of course, is God's grace is free. If you want it, come and get it. You don't need to bring anything. Just pray for it today. So, hurt, humility, and now we get to the healing of Naaman. Verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean, like that of a young boy. 
So Naaman did eventually swallow his pride and he acted in faith. I want you to notice that he needed more than just 30 seconds of faith here. As if he could just close his eyes and say, okay, I've got faith now. I'm healed, great. No. Imagine the faith it took to wash once, get out, nothing. Wash again, get out, nothing. Wash again, get out. Wash again, get out. Wash again. And that's five times. It's not even up to six yet, not let alone seven. Still nothing, no healing, nothing. Get out, wash again. Six times, nothing. Maybe you've put your faith in Jesus and time has passed and you feel nothing. No change. It's tempting to think, well, that didn't work. Maybe God isn't real after all. How long do you need to keep putting your faith in God until something happens? Naaman washed again, seven times. And this time, his skin is, we're told, restored and became clean like that of a young boy. In the Bible, the number seven represents completeness. In a way, Naaman had complete faith. He committed 100% to Elisha's instructions. If he'd just done half of it, it wouldn't have worked. Even if he'd done six out of seven, it wouldn't have worked. He had to commit 100%. So real faith is more than just a moment of belief. It has to be sustained commitment to the message, even at times when it feels like nothing is happening. And if you want to see God at work in your life, you need faith that characterizes every area of your life for a sustained period of time. So keep persevering. That's how Naaman was healed. 100% faith. Hurts, humility, healing, and finally, Hosanna. Now, that word has come to me in praise or worship, and I obviously chose it because it starts with an H. Praise, worship, okay, Hosanna. Um, Naaman's experience led to worship. Verse 15, then Naaman and all his attendants trooped back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Even though Naaman urged him, he refused. So what can we learn from Naaman's worship? Well, here are three things. First of all, he declares there is no other God. Not just, wow, your God is more powerful than all my other gods. I'll add your God to my pantheon of gods. He makes a clean break from all of his past religions. And he says, your God is the only God. If you're a Christian, you can only be a Christian. You can't leave your options open. If you leave your options open, you're not a Christian. Secondly, he resolves, I'm only going to worship this God. He says, your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Today, of course, we don't offer burnt sacrifices to gods, but we might still make sacrifices to keep and build up the things we love. What takes up most of your time, money, and thought? What does your mind wander onto when you're at rest? Are those things too important for you? To you, I should say. Maybe more important than God. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. If you want to worship God, 
worship God alone. Thirdly, Naaman changes. Remember previously Naaman was cross when Elisha didn't come out to see him. He thought more highly of himself than he did of Elisha. But now he calls himself Elisha's servant no fewer than five times. He says, please accept a gift from your servant. Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth and so on. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. May the Lord forgive your servant this. How many times does he have to say your servant to show that he's a changed man? An encounter with God changes how you see yourself and other people. Naaman was an Aramean. Elisha was an Israelite. They were political and military enemies. But Naaman now loves his enemy. And who taught us to love our enemies? Jesus did. He taught us to love our enemies, didn't he? Now, at this point, I was going to say a little bit about the cryptic reference to as much earth as you can carry in the Temple of Rimon, but uh, I'm not going to. So if you're interested in that, come and talk to me afterwards. So (laughs) to recap so far, God is ready to heal anyone who wants to be healed. Naaman wanted to be healed, so he got it. But my last point is that another group didn't want to be healed, and so they didn't get it. And sadly, that was God's chosen people. That was the Israelites. At the time of this story, we're in two kings. Israel had turned away from God and was worshipping idols. This is nearly 3,000 years ago. And Elisha's servant, Gehazi, or Gehazi, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Kim and I have obviously grown up pronouncing it in different ways. I'll call it Gehazi. Sorry, Kim. I'm not sure which one's right. But Elisha's servant Gehazi is really held up as an example of the evil Israelite, sadly. He has all the privileges of being part of God's people. And not only that, but he lives with the great prophet Elisha. And yet he is cruel, he is shallow, and he is deceitful. Let me show you how. Firstly, he shows prejudice towards Naaman, verse 20. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he bought. He calls him this Aramean. It's a bit scathing, as though he thought that he, as an Israelite, is much better than this Aramean. He's being racist, basically. And because he was above Naaman the Aramean, Naaman was there to be exploited by him. That's how he saw it. His whole outlook is, how can I use and exploit this person who is beneath me? That is cruel and that is shallow. Secondly, Gehazi swears by God's name to do evil. Verse 20 again, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Now, Elisha had used the same oath, as surely as the Lord lives, to say he wouldn't take anything. But Gehazi swears by God to do evil. He has no respect for God and no respect for God's love and justice. He swears by God to exploit and steal from a visitor to his country. And not just a visitor, but someone who has received God's grace. Elisha says to him, is this the time to take money or accept clothes? God has just shown free grace to Naaman, and now you're making it look like it costs something. Is this the time? 
Gehazi is more interested in himself than in honoring God. And I find that comes uncomfortably close to my own heart at times. I'm more interested in myself than in honoring God. Thirdly, uh, Gehazi lies through his teeth. Gehazi hurried after Naaman, this is verse 21. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from his chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Can you see how, Naam, uh, how Naaman's changed here? Um, a servant runs up and he jumps down from his Range Rover and says, are you okay? Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. That is a clever lie. He's not asking for something for himself. He's not saying Elisha has changed his mind. He doesn't ask for everything Naaman brought, just a little bit, to help others. That is very creative, but it is appalling. It reminds me of scam text messages I keep getting that say, Hi, Mum. Well, okay. I've broken my phone and I'm texting you from a friend's phone. Please could you WhatsApp me on such and such a number? That is genius. But what sort of person do you have to be to send me that text message to get my money? It's evil, isn't it? So what happens to Gehazi? Well, God punishes him. Verse 25. He went in and stood before his master. Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi. He's lying through his teeth again, okay? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or accept clothes or olive groves or vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female servants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had, it had become as white as snow. Ironic. Gehazi had said, I swear by God that I will get something from this dirty Aramean. And he did. He got his skin disease. God brings our own evil back to bite us. That's how the punishment for sin works. Notice that God didn't heal Naaman and then immediately transfer the leprosy to Gehazi for being such a faithless and selfish person. He didn't do that. God just let Gehazi's faithlessness and selfishness run its course until Gehazi got exactly what he asked for. And there's a reminder here that sin has consequences for people around us as well. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Sounds harsh. In our individualistic culture, we like to think that there are some guilty pleasures we can enjoy without hurting anybody else. But that is a lie. All sin has consequences for people around us, including children and grandchildren, if we have them. Gehazi is not alone. He represents many people. In this story, he represents almost all of faithless Israel. Did you notice how well the Arameans come across in the story compared with how badly Israel comes across, except Elisha and the solitary slave girl? So Naaman is described in these glowing terms. The king of Aram is portrayed as really wise and amenable. Naaman's servants are so caring and so sensible. They say, 
if he'd, you know, if Elisha told you to do some great thing, you'd have done it. Why not just do this thing? They're portrayed so well. But in Israel, Gehazi, not a nice man, and the only other character apart from Elisha and the slave girl is the king of Israel, who comes across as weak and certainly having no faith in God. Verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes, a sign of mourning, and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. He just throws his hands in the air and says, what do you expect me to do about it? He should have said, I can't help you, but I know a God who can. That's what a faithful king would have said. Now, unfortunately, that bad attitude reminds me that I'm a bad husband. Because Claire sometimes comes to me with problems, and sometimes she wants me to do more than just listen, but the problem seems so great, so beyond either of us, that I just throw my hands up in the air and say, what do you expect me to do about it? And in my heart, I'm thinking, am I God? This is the kind of situation that no person can sort out. If I was a good husband, I would say, let's pray about that. And let's point people to God. You don't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be husband and wife. It could be a friend, it could be a work colleague. They come to you with a problem. How often do you say, this problem is beyond me, but let's pray about it? But anyway, this king, he was just weak and, and faithless. So the people who should have been closest to God with the greatest privileges. And the most experience of God's dealings turn out to be more faithless and selfish than anyone. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, nothing's changed. Jesus said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So Jesus said, the people in front of him, they didn't feel their hurt. They didn't think they needed Jesus for healing. They didn't swallow their pride. So they didn't accept Jesus. So they didn't receive God's great healing. And so, like Gehazi, their true colors come out and they try and kill Jesus by throwing him off a cliff. Now today, it's so easy for us to be more like the weak king of Israel or like selfish Gehazi than it is for us to be like Naaman. So I'm going to finish the sermon now. Sorry, I've gone a bit over time. And I'm going to finish with a prayer for God's mercy. And let's be thankful that when we come to God with empty hands, knowing that we need his mercy, we can receive it. Let's pray. Lord God, too often we're just as weak and self-dependent as Israel's King Joram and just as self-seeking and devious as Gehazi. Please forgive us. May we not take your grace for granted. But like Naaman, may we acknowledge our need, humbly come to you for healing and leave healed with a heart full of worship. Amen.